Hello and welcome to Table for Five with no reservations. Take a seat at the table for a fresh, sweet, salty, tart, and pleasantly bitter conversation. Thank you for taking a seat at the table. Tonight we're going to be talking about the head and the heart. Decisions that you have to make, although your heart is screaming while you do them when you go through parenting. Seated tonight, I have Jen Dunn from Vancouver, British Columbia. Hello. Rachel Flanagan from St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey. Jamie Ramos from Denver, Colorado. Hello. Kim McIsaac from Boston, Massachusetts. Hi. And myself, Tabitha Cabrera from Phoenix, Arizona. So when we were discussing how we were going to talk about this, pretty much I have felt my most rewarded as a mother during my experience parenting my children. It's the greatest job I've ever had. They're fantastic. I have also felt my most personal failures <laughs> as a mother um, with yeah. my children. So it is just a challenging space to be in. And we wanted to kind of talk about those decisions that you have to make that you don't necessarily want to make, but you need to for your children. So we thought we would start out with uh, Rachel Flanagan today. Thanks, Tams. Yeah. I definitely struggle with this head and heart thing. I feel like as a personality type, I'm pretty analytical and pretty action plan, like clipboard, lots of markers, color coded kind of girl. But then I, let's see, waited 13 years or more and finally got my daughter and my heart exploded and my already feelings on the sleeve persona just bled for her. She's just everything that I could ever dream and that we ever did, like down to the curly hair and the big biscuits, her love of Target and the fact that she'll wave goodbye to it. Uh, all of those things are exactly what we dreamed of having in our daughter. What came along with was obviously going to be like this mystery of strengths and weaknesses. My daughter, Celie, is six now. She is autistic. She has fetal alcohol syndrome. We have some mental health things like anxiety and depression that are, it's unfathomable to me that a life of six has anxiety and depression. I just didn't even consider that mental health condition could weigh so heavily on a six-year-old's experience and that we would be balancing that chemical imbalance uh, at such a young age. And all of that to say that right now we are in the midst of a really hard chapter. And so I'm living in this head heart conundrum constantly. My head knows my daughter is worthy of all the things that I can get her more. My head also knows that I'm the mom that'll shake a tree until <laughs> something falls and I will keep on. My heart knows that it's not damn fair that she has such a big struggle. It is not fair that my daughter has to live in a situation where the world hurts her physically um, and in every other way. It's not about physical trauma. I'm talking about the next door neighbor's microwave or the fact that she feels like she's getting hit by a car when we're walking down a street. A six-year-old should walk down a damn street, you know? So here I'm watching this babe like fight for her life and I just feel like my head wins. We go for the clipboard version of getting help and, you know, we're searching that out. We're trying... It's just like currently 508, uh, April 17th, and I am in the shit. You know, we're trying, we're fighting, and it's just hard. It's hard to live in battle among myself in order to best battle for her. Did you feel um, that mind space, like, I, I feel like I've always had that mind space since Nixon took his first breath outside of my body. You know, I felt decisions being made for him from the get-go were out of my control somewhat because of his 
birth experience and being in the NICU. And I just felt like I had failed him. I really did. I felt like, and even though I knew that was my heart, even though I knew in my mind, logically, obviously I couldn't have done anything differently to make that experience different, but I just felt like a failure as a mother to him from jump street. So that's exactly it. Like I've never tried so hard and failed so much and holy mackerel, <laughs> like yeah. failing so much, but I can tell you in trying to be positive and sort of let my mind be impacted by my heart. I can tell you that we, or anybody listening to season two, episode one of learning how to mom with a bunch of, <laughs> we, yeah. Oh, did I say that wrong episode? Oh, whatever. You know where you are. Congratulations. <laughs> you made it. We all care so much that we bonded over caring so hard and feeling so big. Like, yeah. Well, and I've, I had one space, my best friend's husband, one time I was talking to him about our path with the kids and their autism journey and all of that stuff and how much we think about our children all the time, not just special needs parents, all parents think about their children all the time, it just comes with the package. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he was like, well, the thing that you should know is if you're feeling that much and thinking that much, then you're doing a good job. Because right, that's you what know? I mean. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's quite the uh, feelings that overflow into the choices you have to make. So, what about you, Jen? Ah, uh, very much uh, what Rachel said with the outside world. Kaya and I went on a uh, medication journey that I very much struggled with my heart and my head. My head was telling me to continue with medication because that's what the doctors were saying. My heart knew something wasn't right. I was trying to help my daughter. She has debilitating anxiety, like a lot of our kiddos do. Like Rachel said, you know, she should be able to walk down the street and enjoy the day. And I always say that she cannot tolerate the outside world. It was not designed for her. Lights, sound, people, it's too much. And through that journey of medication, I want to be very clear, I'm not medication shaming, nor am I judging anybody on that path. Um, it's done wonderful things for many, many children. Unfortunately for my daughter, it almost destroyed her mind and body. And in that process, I had to follow my heart and my mother's chirping voice in my, in my ear <laughs> to um, take the plunge and stop medications. And my daughter came back to me. It was the best thing I ever did. And that was a a, a really big tug of war for me because I had the experts telling me she needed to be on medication and I was watching my daughter lose herself every day. Kai has always been aggressive, but the aggression that came from it was 5,000 times more than it was prior to meds. The screaming, the sadness, the sleeping, the weight gain, nothing good came from medication, nothing they end up being hollow. Our daughters have yes. a lot in common in this way. And yes, they're empty in there, in their, their struggle so big, their sparkle is leaving. I saw it in her eyes. I mean, I could see that she was blank and she was sad. And one day she said to me, no pink pill mama. And that was a defining moment for me because it was the first time I, I, I kind of thought oh, she gets it. She knows what these pills are doing to her. She knows she doesn't like how they make her feel. And it it was hard because I had children's hospital telling me she needs these medications. 
I had our doctor, her pediatrician, who is wonderful. He's a mental health specialist for children on the spectrum, but it just wasn't for my daughter. And yeah, it was a tough decision, but the best decision I ever made. Yeah. I love the way that you talk about kind of balancing the professionals in that space, because you had so many professionals telling you, oh, she should try this. She should, you should try this medication or you should try this. And then you met with, was he a psychologist? He was a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Yeah. We were on a wait list um, because they, they, all the professionals were saying, well, maybe she's bipolar. Maybe she's schizophrenic. Maybe she's this, maybe she's that. And when the psychiatrist, the first psychiatrist we, we got to said, no wonder she's bleeping raging. No wonder she's this, no wonder she's that. She's on nine medications a day. She's a little girl. First of all, they do not diagnose bipolar in a child until they're through uh, puberty, until they're in their teens, unless it's a very clear cut. So I'll be clear, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen in children, it does. But those are very extreme conditions. I think that doctors are very quick to diagnose and medicate these days. And it was eye-opening to hear a professional say that. What was more eye-opening was the second psychiatrist appointment we had after Kaya had been tapered off a lot of her meds. And the psychiatrist actually said, are you trying to tell me she's better off without Prozac? Yeah, I actually am. And he didn't believe me. And he kind of laughed at me and kind of went, that's fine. Then we're going to close your file. I said, by all means, close it and don't open it again. And it, it, it was, a, this was a, a psychiatrist at Children's Hospital. I mean, they're the best of the best. And so it was a long struggle with my heart and my head. Because like you said, Tabitha, I had the professionals telling me my child needed to be on these medications. And my heart telling me I was losing my daughter every single day. It took my mother that actually looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing to that little girl? It's exactly what she said to me. Kaya was a shell of herself and it was the worst. I think that time, although Kaya's diagnosis is lifelong and it was shattering and devastating, that was the hardest time of our lives. So I'm I'm happy to be uh, relatively through it. (laughs) And how long was she on medication? Uh, Over a year. Yeah. Yeah. Over a year. Oh, it's heavy stuff. These choices. What about you, Kim? What do you think about in this space? Head in the heart. For me, it's a little different because my daughter is much older than you guys as kids. So she's 24. I think my biggest struggle with the head in the heart is just completely accepting what her life is. You know, obviously I do accept it, but at the same time, there's just parts of me and there's times like when those you know she's pretty good for the most part you know she's through most of the hurdles but when those things come back like my mind accepts it I know at this point she's 24 a lot's probably not going to change you know she's gonna always be severe she's most likely always going to be nonverbal. although she's made so many strides in the past few years you know she's not going to drive a car she's not gonna I don't have that thing of in 10 years who knows what's going to happen and when she's a teen, who knows what's going to happen? We're already kind of through that stuff. So it's like, I, I love her more than life itself. In my heart, I struggle. And it's very easy when things are going well to say it is what it is. You know what I mean? You're going to be positive and make the best of everything. It's not easy to do that when they're going 24 to 48 hours without sleep. It's not easy to do that when they're being aggressive towards their siblings. It's not easy to do that when they're hurting themselves. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot of layers to life into this. Of course, I accept my daughter. I'm not saying or even inferring that I don't. It's just sometimes in my heart that I still grapple with that at, at different times. Not all the time. It's not like every day. It's just at different times. Like this is one of those times when I see her just 
struggling. It's it's just hard. And then the older she gets, the more you're thinking about what's going to happen. Eventually, me and my husband aren't going to be here. Although I know everybody, a lot of autism parents think about that. But the older you get, the more real that worry becomes. You know, because then you um, had her when you were eight. <laughs> I had her when I was twenty. And the other thing I would say. As far as just, you know, decision-wise, when your child goes into the adult world as an autistic individual, it is very different. Services are extremely scarce. They basically don't have educational services at all. Um, And that's something I struggle with immensely because I feel that my daughter is not going to be able to meet her potential without getting these services and they're just not there. And that's a very hard pill to swallow. Believe me, I fought it at first and I try to do as much as I can, but I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, a teacher. I'm a mom. You know, I have two teenagers. I run a daycare. Like it's not always possible. Of course, I work with her and we try to do stuff and she's making amazing progress. You know, it almost makes it harder because I feel like if she were to have access to these services, I feel like she would go a lot further. So that's something I struggle with because it's kind of like I can't necessarily focus on that every day because it will break you. You know, I have to kind of accept how it is for now. And obviously I'm always kind of searching and trying to learn and being open to like different and new things that may be coming, but it's really hard. And the services that they have for adults, you know, it's something that gets her out of the house and keeps her busy, which she needs because she definitely struggles really bad if she's not in some kind of structure. But that's, that's something my hot grapples with. She deserves better than what she has and that's difficult as a parent because this podcast is going to do great we're going to be rich i'm going to open my own school <laughs> i won't have to do sorry about People that we're going to be looking for real estate yes, yes. Head and um, please no, keep it's really, listening <laughs> it's really hard you know that's that's something yeah. that like i've really struggled with yeah well and i think for us our kids are younger space we have those same kind of feelings when it comes to deciding which therapies and which school and which program your child's going to go to because you don't really know which one's going to work or which one's going to make the biggest difference. Sometimes you have to trade off, like, am I going to do speech? Are we going to do developmental preschool? Are we going to do, because there's only so much time in the week that you, and you have this pressure where they're like, you have to get these services before Mm -hmm. they're six year old, even though that's not true. I mean, you find out later, anyone listening, get services whenever, because they all make a difference if they work for your child. It's never too late. And I feel like we didn't have ABA centers or anything like that when she was younger. She had a school that she went to that was a collaborative and she got speech and OT and physical therapy and they had ABA principals, but not the same as like, you know, one-on-one with the ABA center. They kind of just did it within the classroom and we did outside speech and we did outside OT, but it ended up, it was a nightmare. Like we, it didn't really make a difference. Like we couldn't, I was so stressed out trying to get her there with all the kids there back and forth. And eventually we stopped doing it because they're in school all day. And then you're rushing them back and forth to therapy and you're you're rushing the other kids back and forth. And we personally made the decision to kind of like, I mean, she was already getting it at school. So this was just like an added benefit. And we did try it for a while, but it ended up being more, you just have to kind of know like what's going to work for your house and your family. Sometimes it's okay to take a break. And we revisited at different times. She's gets speech therapy now. But even that, this week, it's triggering her because yeah. she's not sleeping. So it's like, mm-hmm. I got to keep having her go. If I don't keep having her go, we'll lose our spot. Yeah. And she likes it. And she's normally fine. It's just she's so flipping tired because she's not sleeping. I mean, she's gone over 24 hours being awake right now. And she's still awake. It's hard. What about you, Jamie? So, I mean, I agree with a lot of uh, I think back for me, since my son is six and back to like diagnosis and all the back and forth and stuff that was, I think the moment the idea of autism is introduced to you, it's as a problem, it's introduced as something's not right. Your child's not meeting these milestones. 
you are sat down and told you need to do this and this, and all of a sudden you're given things that are going to fix it. Get them into early intervention, meet a psychiatrist or a developmental pediatrician, get a diagnosis because that's going to get you services and speech and OT and all these things are going to help. So once you do that, you, your life becomes solving this problem that your kid has autism. And for me, and I feel like a lot of people experience is that if you get in before six or in before this certain time, you can fix it. Your kid can live a normal life. People say these things to you. So your goal becomes, okay, I got to do this. I got to fix it. I got to fix it. And so you're, I was very head in that beginning, but I would also like beat myself up and I'd be like, well, is my anxiety part of this that I'm not calling enough people? I hate calling people. I hate Mm. making appointments. (laughs) I hate all that stuff. So I like kind of delay it and I drag my feet and that's awful. But I'm like, I didn't get him on this wait list fast enough. I didn't do this and this. And I actually just wrote a piece about how like six came and went And there was no magical snap in my kid's head that changed who he was. You know, I think by the time we got diagnosed just before five, later than a lot of people do, we we were in some services at that point. But I just remember even before I had kids and I knew autism, I wanted my kids to somewhat be free spirited. I want them Mm -hmm. to be themselves and have their own personalities. And I, at the beginning, I was kind of losing that with my son. And when I originally started my blog, it was called Johnny's Spirit, talking about my son's spirit and how I didn't want to lose his spirit. And I didn't want my kid to be in therapies all day. I wanted him to be a little boy at some point, even if that little boy is just sitting in the sand, dropping sand, watching it over and over again. I didn't want to like kill that in him. So I was really torn between like, okay, am I going to fix this? And once six came and went, I realized I'm not going to fix him. I can help him in life. I can help him learn the way he needs to learn to have those uh, life skills and to be able to learn in a classroom or to interact with friends and feel the joy of um, having close relationships. I can help him as much as I can learn those skills, but I can't fix my kid. And I think that was the hardest part for me between my head and my heart was listening to these other people and being told by professionals or just by people in my life well if you do this and this he'll be fine we just have to do it you just have to do it and it's but I also want my kid to be a kid and I don't I don't know I want to fight a battle that I'm never gonna win and that battle comes up all the time we've been in a pretty good space where my my son's just been at a therapy center because of COVID we didn't do school this year we just did therapy and we're in a nice little bubble where all his friends are atypical at the school he's with a one-on-one all the time and people who understand autism are working with him all the time, but pretty soon we're about to be out of that bubble. And I'm already getting nervous because we're going to have to go to kindergarten next year and I'm going to be fighting this battle all over again. So I think it's just a never ending thing. Uh, like Kim said, like it's going to go on forever and ever. Mm. Well, it could be a whole separate podcast episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I feel that so much. I really, I feel every bit of that for sure. Cause we're kind of in the same age bracket with our kids. Um, My son's four and a half and my daughter's two. Um, I clearly remember when this struck me the most. Nixon was probably about three-ish, maybe. Nora was six months old and he wasn't potty trained yet. We were working on it or whatever. The baby was napping. I took him outside. He had an accident outside. While I bring him in to try and clean that up, he knocked over a coffee cup on the floor on accident and it shattered. And then I cut my foot. I'm like bleeding. There's poop everywhere. There's glass everywhere. I'm home by myself. I don't know what Nick was doing. 
my husband, and I just started sobbing. And I'm like, why is this so hard? And then the baby wakes up. <laughs> and Marty I, when you need him. <laughs> Marty. Oh. And I was like, I am failing. I am legitimately failing in this situation. And it wasn't even like a big deal of what was happening in the moment. Like, obviously all of that can be fixed. I just remember all of the things, all of the worry, all of the appointments you know, he hadn't adjusted to his sister that well in the beginning. There was a lot of anger towards me when she came into the picture. He was always sweet towards her. And it was mainly, you know, our relationship that he was really upset about changing. And I lived in that space for a little while where I was like, how can this be so hard? How can I be failing so much? And is this how everyone feels? Because it doesn't seem like this is the normal way that people feel when they parent children. I feel for me too, a lot before I knew it was autism, I felt like such a failure. Yeah. I would look at other like two-year-olds. I'm like, they just sit there. They color. They just do activities. Like my kid, no way. And I was, all I could think was like, what am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. And no one sees it the same way you do because you see every moment as their mother you see everything and so you just feel like the biggest failure and that no one else understands why and you take that on yourself because you can't really share it with anyone because they don't understand it yeah like you was very resentful for my daughter spending Saturdays in therapy and all of my friends children were in ballet and soccer and tap and we spent our Saturdays in speech and OT and I became very, very, very bitter about it. Yeah. I and I think as as a parent, when you go through these really hard times and you, you struggle with it, you struggle emotionally and you feel these things that people, you know, tell you you shouldn't feel, but you're going to feel them. You know what I mean? You're going to feel like you don't want to do this today or this is too much or this is too hard. You know, I, I felt that many times because it's hard. It's a lot. It's so much for a parent to take on the stuff sometimes that we take on on top of like the normal parenting stuff. I mean, normal parents feel that way that don't have special needs kids. And then it's just a part of mothering. And yeah. there's just such, there's so much shame and there's so much people telling you like, oh, you need to be strong or especially with special, you're so strong. That's what people tell us, but it's like, and we I are strong, strong. You know what I mean? But I then, don't feel strong. But we, yeah, <laughs> yeah. in these moments, when yeah. the stuff is happening, you don't because yeah. it breaks you. You know, mm-hmm. it just chips away. It really does. It, it chips away at pieces of your soul. It does. You know, when you and see think- your child like hurting somebody in your house when you see your child hurting you if that's what your situation is when you see your child hurting themselves or when they can't regulate like when and you're supposed to be able to fix this as a mom you're supposed to be able to fix everything as a mom that's how you feel that's how people like at least make it easier and sometimes you can't sometimes you can't as a goal but I would love to help her yeah yeah so hard we had had a time in um, Alyssa's life when she was really young I think it was before she was diagnosed and she would get really upset and she would have these, she would cry. They would last hours and you couldn't touch her. If you touch her, she recoiled and screamed twice as hard. You couldn't even pick her up to calm her. As a parent, that is like, that destroys you because all you want to do is pick that baby up, pick that baby up, hold them. And then her father couldn't touch her at all for a period of time. Only me or her Nana and her brother, only us three could touch her. Nobody else could touch her at all. I think too, the base of that, when you have a baby or you're expecting to have a baby people tell you like oh you'll get that mother instinct it's part of you as a woman Mm -hmm. you know you'll have a child and you'll you'll know what to do 
and I'm sure for all of us very early on, you're like, no, I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't feel that automatic instinct whatsoever. Something, something's wrong with me. This isn't working. And also when you are a special needs parent, like Kim was saying, you hear that all the time. You're very special. Like God gave you this great gift of a special. We are not special people at all. Like, okay, Jamie, that's a pet peeve I have. (laughs) Kimmy is. But the rest is going to be, but you know, like there's not like some magic thing that I know what to do. I am a very normal, regular person. I am actually very unqualified to be doing what I'm doing. I feel like, and obviously there's poor special need children that are born into horrible families that don't help them and they're abused and, you know, weigh things beyond us. But like, it's just the worst thing to hear because you're like, no, I don't feel that way. I don't feel that I was made for this because- I definitely don't feel like I was made for it. Well, and there's always the part of your journey where like, you don't know that your child has special needs yet. Yeah. And you're going through all these things and you're like, oh, she's just, you know, she just doesn't like her shoes on or she's just likes to spin around in circles or whatever it might be. And then (laughs) there comes the point that when you find out that there's something wrong and you're like, how did I not know that? I mean, Mm -hmm. how could you know when you don't know what you don't know, but like, there's just that part of you right from the get-go that feels like you already like did something wrong by not knowing. I don't know why we do this to ourselves, but that's what the natural instinct is more than anything else is to like question yourself. And yeah, we've been in a hard place. And so I've been challenging uh, me and Billy have been trying to reconnect. C was just 19 days inpatient. And so we were hoping that she would get a certain help and we were trying to like make the most of our time. And one of the like, hey, we can talk about her and be healthy about this and like, look at the good was to go back in our pictures. Like it used to hurt. It used to hurt my feelings when I would see like every single dang thing from Dory lined up in a damn row, autism written all over that table. (laughs) And I didn't know. Now we can go back with a smile and be like, oh, remember when we called her quirky? (laughs) Yeah. Like I sent you ladies the other day, I found a Blackberry disc. That that dates me, a Blackberry. (laughs) (laughs) Blackberry, it's like an archive. And I I was hesitant to put the disc in and I did because I knew what was on there and it was pictures and videos from when she was a baby. And I was like, you know, whistling at her. Hello, Kaya, look at mama. I mean, and I sent it to you ladies. I'm like, well, this screams autism. <laughs> and I knew in my gut that something was, I don't like to say the word wrong, different. but something was different about my daughter and heart was telling me that something was wrong with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And then when well, people are telling you that everything's fine yes, and it's just a kid thing or it, it's because they're the second child or it's because they're not around kids or whatever things people are telling you and you want to believe it. Your heart wants to believe that. You're, it's like, it's like, well, you're telling me what I want to hear. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to accept this for now because that's what you want to believe. Even though there's a part of you that is like, but is it? but is, yeah. you know, is <laughs> yeah, it? But always. you're like, well, the doctor said it was, so it must be. I was know, just I, in those shoes though, girl. And I was like, what are you talking about? Look at the problem this direction. Like I was trying to explain. I mean, I don't think it's like this relief. Well, you were trying to advocate that what she's diagnosed with is what she's diagnosed with. The opposite of trying she to not get busy. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I have this problem too. Like it gets me in weird places. 
Like I'll get an email about my daughter's development because I signed up for one of those mm-hmm. apps yep. and then they send me these random emails. Nora's 21 months. This is all the things she's doing now. I'm like, I delete. I don't even want to read your title of your email. I should unsubscribe. I haven't done that yet because I immediately delete the email and then I can't go back and unsubscribe to their email of what they're sending me about my Same. child's development. But I, it's things like that, like that'll just like yeah. immediately, I feel like a terrible parent, even though I know that this is not anything to do with anything that I could have done. And I'm trying my absolute best, but I do feel like that heart is screaming sometimes when I just, it's rubbed in your face and you can't walk away from it. Sometimes it's not anything that is put on our children. It is the reality of the situation. And I, I feel like it's okay if you have those feelings yes. because they're going to come no matter what they really are. They're going to come no matter what. And they're going to pop up even when you don't think about it. I yeah. remember we put Jesse in soccer. They So at his developmental preschool, they had like a sample of it come in during class. And I guess he did really well. They're like, oh, he kicked the ball and made a goal and he cheered for the other kids. And I was like, okay, I'm going to sign up for this soccer program which was insanely expensive, but I was like, I'm going to do it because my, I played soccer as a kid. My kids were going to play soccer. We put them in this program and it's like my kids by the window, my kids swirling around in the middle of the floor, you know, interrupting play for all the other people's children when they've also paid this outrageous price for these soccer classes and seeing that would, it like broke my heart because you get like those glimmers of hope be like, Oh, we'll maybe we could do this now. Maybe we could do this. And then you just realize you can't. And it's not that, was, that. Jamie, I did that with horse riding lessons. And I thought, kid doesn't like to ride a horse. And my kid was sitting on the ground in the middle of the ring, playing with the dirt, didn't care about riding the horse because she had to wait 25 minutes to do her turn. And I, like you, Jamie, always think about everyone else that's paid to do these activities. And I feel like we're holding everyone up and all that stuff. And it's, it's hard because you want your kids to do it. But at the same time, you feel like it's not that it's not fair to other people. I'm not really sure how I'm trying to word it, but it does affect everybody around that's doing the activity. So you stand out even more. <laughs> You're the one holding it up, you know? Yeah, it's isolating. You just feel, Very I mean, and for us too, when the, there are like, you know, not this year, obviously, because of COVID, but there are like special needs type of leagues and stuff like that. And then I feel like with my son's autism, he has great motor skills. He can do things. And so going to those things where there's a lot of kids with physical handicaps and more severe diagnosis that like, I'm like, well, I also feel like we don't belong here either. And so it's just this isolating place where you just feel really alone because you're like, oh, I don't feel like we can do anything really. And then like you guys were saying later, all that money that you would spend on like soccer gear or football or whatever, it goes to therapies and the fact that those therapies take time. So it's like, oh, I'm signing my daughter up for dance. I'm signing up my son for speech, you know? Yeah. All of this could make me just <laughs> weep. <laughs> I mean, it took so much Patrick I did this. Uh, this uh, and I, I, I wrote about this before where it's almost like you see all these things like you're on social media and you see all these people, you know, doing all these little family things, you know, and, and you try so hard like to make those things happen and it just doesn't always fit with your life. You, you know, you end up just upsetting 
your child, upsetting everybody else, you know, and you can't be like these families. We're not like these families. It's almost like forcing a puzzle piece to fit together. Like you can't do it. And it's, it takes a long time to accept that. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to do things. Like I am a huge advocate of being out in the community, trying to do, we've always brought my daughter everywhere. You know, sometimes we had huge fails and that's okay. But sometimes when you're, you know, when you're doing things like I want to do Christmas pajamas, I wanted all of us to have matching Christmas. She won't wear them. You know, so it's like, I'm taking the pictures. She's trying to take the shirt off because she doesn't <laughs> want it on her. You know, little things like that, that are like, they're not really big deals, but it's just like little pieces of normalcy that sometimes you just, you, you crave those, you know, you want, want to have those. But then when it's causing such distress, it's like, you, sometimes you gotta, you know, you gotta pick and choose your battles. You gotta let go of some of those things. So you leave an event and you think, why could we not just do this? I leave in tears most of the time because. Or you're like, <laughs> I knew better. I knew better. Why did I do this? You know, yeah. but yeah. like my favorite saying is if there's anything predictable about autism is that it's unpredictable. Unpredictable. <laughs> it's the only predictable thing. So you have to try, you know? Yeah. Well, for anyone out there, if you're feeling this way, guess what? You're not alone. <laughs> we have Welcome to the table. We've all felt this way. And I think whether you're parenting a special needs child, whether you're, you're parenting in general, I mean, there's tons of writing out there about mom guilt and feeling, and not just moms, but feeling you're not doing enough or you can't do everything. So we are here talking about it. The heavy head in the heart teeter-totter that we're on sometimes. So thanks everyone for joining us for this episode. Check out the next one, episode three, coming your way. Thank you for joining us at the table for episode two of our second series, The Mixtape of Us. Make sure to join us for episode three, self-care. When do you find time for self-care when you're living in survival mode? To join in on the conversation and to learn more about us, make sure to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash table for five podcasts. See you really soon.